Conversations in Society. We talk racism, culture, politics, and economics, the issues that matter to you. Hello, my name is Danielle from In Society, and I'm joined today with my co-founder Gita. We're here to talk about Black history and Black and marginalized ethnic communities' contributions to the UK. We're also joined here by Peke, the director of African History Project. It's always a great time to link up with you. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, thank you, and super excited to be on this podcast. Amazing. So let's get straight into it. Yeah, we've got Black history. We're looking at it from a British perspective, um, teaching racism in education. We're also going to be looking at black and marginalized ethnic people's contribution to the UK. So first of all, with black history, does anyone know when black people came to the UK? Ah, this is an interesting one. And I think um, the actual starting point is who is black? Yes. Actually would be where we would start um, because... Um, When uh, Africans were taken from the um, coast of West Africa, primarily in in the beginning into the Western world, so we're going to ignore the Eastern um, slave trade, um, they were, of course, not black. They were African. Yeah. And um, this kind of identification of blackness as a political um, identity um, really took some time to uh, exist and it really is a designation that I think initially was to differentiate the peoples of the colonies who were clearly not European but they were not African anymore so it didn't really make sense to continue to call them African after a hundred years from actual African people who were still engaged in trade with Europeans on on the west coast of Africa so in terms of when did black people come to Africa I'm sorry come to um, Britain you could if you were to take black people to mean Africans um, go all the way back to the Roman times because of course Rome was an empire that extended into northern Africa and of course northern Africa at that time didn't have the um, same racial composition that we see now and even now, to be honest, there are many darker skinned um, African communities in in North Africa, but they're primarily Berber Arabs. And so there would have been people who would have come um, with the Romans who were Roman or who um, were from some of the territories that Romans had conquered, who would today we would probably call black. But of course, you know, they they would would not have considered themselves to be black um, because those things didn't didn't bother them. Other things were bothering them, um, but not those things in particular. If we're really talking about people um, that we would today consider to be black, then we're looking at really at the 1500s. Um, You start to have individuals coming really during the reign of Henry VIII and Elizabeth I. Um, And you start to have one or two kind of um, uh, points about them. And that's because the Portuguese have been um, trading with West Africa by that point for about 100 years. Um, So those communities are growing and and they start to to come. Um, But even then, they're not anything that you can call a community really until we start to get into the 19th and I think some people might say even the 20th century uh, any sizable community of black people in the UK yeah true Um, but yeah I think 
we definitely want to explore that race, you know, as an idea again, because it is definitely important to highlight what is race. Um, so we've heard the saying race is a social construct. We've also know about political blackness. So it's putting more towards a political sense. Do we agree with the sense that race is a social construct? I think it, it, it depends if you're talking about, for example, if you're in a Caribbean island where uh, people are descended from many different groups, then race there might be a, a distinguishing feature between uh, many different people that have had different social, political um, designations. So if you're descended from a Chinese Caribbean community, then yes, the Chinese Caribbeans are a race. Um, and if you're descended from indigenous uh, Amerindian communities, then that would be a race as well. Um, if you look at um, less modern societies, for example, back in Africa, then race really doesn't really come into it. You're now talking about um, cultural groupings, linguistic groupings, yeah. and some of the words that you will use there, tribes and clans, um, family groups, mat matrilineal groups, that sort of stuff. But races, we're just going to take the, the standard definition. Um, the two big races would be white and black. Yeah. And that is, in my opinion, an entirely social construct that doesn't delegitimize it but it's entirely um a social construct because it often is a contradiction of itself so for example if we look and we, we really do have to go to the former slave societies of the caribbean and, and the americas to to really get a sense of this you could have somebody who is 95 genetically white yeah but would still be black in um, in Caribbean or North American or even Southern American society. So that's a nonsensicality because if your race has absolutely nothing to do with your genetic makeup, but with your political and economic designation, then it is imaginary yeah. because you could also have the flip side as well where somebody is 95% um, black, but they're still black essentially, but 95% white person is still um, black because of their 5%. So people often refer to it as the one drop rule and things of, of that nature. Um, so, so that doesn't make any sense. The um, other thing is that um, often when we now expand it, you have a whole bunch of people grouped together under the term black that have really nothing to do with each other. Um, who don't speak the same language, even if you look in the Caribbean or the American context, um, the many Caribbean countries, if you look at um, indigenous languages to those countries, as much as there can be indigenous languages like Creoles, yeah. many different Creoles, even within um, islands that had different colonial powers, there are different Creoles. If you look in Africa, I mean, you can throw a stone and you're going to hit another linguistic group. And these are people often with very different religious beliefs, very different um, even rules about land tenure and inheritance, matrilineal, patrilineal societies that um, really would not have considered themselves as being part of any single whole. But because they all suffered under the oppressive regimes of white suzerainty, they are all black. So in that way, it is social because it is grouping people together who did not um, identify themselves as such. And this is a long answer, but I'm just going to give the last bit, <laughs> which is that despite all of that, 
despite all of that, I believe that it is the most powerful um, political and social construct that has ever existed. Um, I think that blackness is um, going to be the biggest regret of those who created it because it is probably going to be the political um, concept that um, shatters uh, white supremacy 100%. more fundamentally than anything else. The fact that uh, a black man can be killed in the United States of America and you have black populations um, all over the world feeling solidarity, I don't think there is another racial group, whether constructed or um, pre-existing or as naturally existing as possible that could have had that that sort of, of impact. And I do believe that the international outcry about George Floyd contributed to um, his the conviction of his of his murderer um, a, a few weeks ago. I do believe that. Yeah, one hundred percent. I mean, it was definitely to the world's response. I think that of course heightened it because I always think that when you see at the highest power of politics <laughs> you respond when you see a lot of uh, people power then you tend to take it more seriously mm. we've seen that happen even yeah. over here um, mm. so what you said about George Floyd I think is really um, uh, true and um, partly it's so Breonna Taylor's case I think is an example mm. of that where the outcry was there but it wasn't to the level globally as George Floyd was and so we really see that. And even in British law, I can't remember where it says, what the exact words were, but in our law, it says that part of the um, case is about um, how it affects and impacts the public. And so this is just mm-hmm. one example of how that really implements law. And obviously America is different um, in the way that they do laws. But I also wanted to kind of take you back a second from what you said. Um, when you mentioned about how um, people identify differently in the one drop test. And I, when I heard about that as well, I was astonished. For those mm-hmm. listening um, in America, I believe when enslavement was was happening, they said that if you have a black person in your family, in your lineage, for even up to five, I think it was up to five stages backwards, generations before you, you're still classified as black mm-hmm. because they wanted to kind of, uh, it was to do with like elitism and all of that and being as white as you can be basically um, and so that's even carried on to today but I think what's really interesting is that people don't identify as that as much anymore but it was more about their experiences in the country and so the country sees them as black regardless of what percentage of black they have in them so and, and I think that's really interesting because even recently and in the UK we see it very differently someone someone who's got mixed uh, heritage they, they classify as mixed heritage but even Leanne from Little Mix recently did a documentary and she mm-hmm. said I identify as black even though I have two parents that are both mixed race um, mm-hmm. and she spoke about the experiences that she's had about being um, someone racialized within a pop industry so I thought that was really interesting that you were just highlighting as well yeah I just want to add on to that, actually. So um, I was listening to About Race podcast, um, and that is Rennie Lodge. She did an interview with the Mm -hmm. MP, uh, Diana Abbott, and they were actually talking about, oh, what is black to you? What is political black? And I just Mm love the fact that they were... Kind of like how a second ago when I said, what is, what is, uh, what is race? And you can't, it's just hard to give a one word answer to that because it's so complex Mm. in that episode. I mean, a whole Mm. episode is dedicated towards it. Well, basically what I got from it is there's white people. And then there's whiteness or white culture. There's black people and then there's blackness or black culture. Mm. And it's interesting because I think Mm. what people are 
talking in re- in regards to is that shared economic, that shared social experience. There's a in, in, there's an experience of life mm. that is black culture. So when you say black culture, is that shared experience? Um, as opposed to black people where people just mm. visually look at you and say you're black. Do you know what I mean? As well as there's the mm. other side of it, which mm. is the political black, again, which is on the back of shared socio and economic experience. But then there's another side. So please correct me if I'm wrong here. I was looking at it in regards to where did race come from? Like who started the definition of it? I was looking at to the UK side of it and from what I could see is they yeah. called people black because it's a classist thing to do it's to say you are of a, you are of a certain mm. class so you are black this is the this is the class of black mm. people I found that interesting that where class is still something mm. I think still prominent in in the UK you know there's still class of people um or at least mm. it feels like it yeah um yeah. it feels like <laughs> there is <laughs> when you have um for instance black people whether you want to say politically black or black because of visual cues there's people who are in different brackets of class in in regards to economic uh background so how does that work how does that work? What if you are of a social, mm. a, a social mm. I am, by the way, I'm air quoting for those who can't see me, of a social status and <laughs> economic background that's similar to people who look different from you. So you can't say it's a visual cue thing and it's not mm. an economic thing and it's not a social thing. What on earth has race got to do mm. with class? What do you think of that? I've got two answers. Bear with me. Bear with me. Um, the first one I would say is that when we look at the flip side of we, I think there can be an, an understanding, and I think that few um, people of white heritage, few white people, will deny that this construct exists, um, and whether or not it was deliberate or it descended from you know from the beyond, you know, is another question which I'll deal with in the second part. But it it does exist, and um, I'm quite absolutist when I come to this sort of topic. Um, whiteness has never had to dissect itself and answer for mm. itself and define itself to this level. So if you're black, you know you're black, and um, other black people will identify you as black, you know, and, and that's probably the, the extensive, and there are a number of reasons for why I would take that position and kind of push back against trying to define it anymore. Um, one of the beautiful things about black culture is its multiplicity and its deep, deep entrenched compassion. There was a choice amongst black people to reject the children that had been introduced into their communities by rape. Um, and they didn't. They didn't do that. And it's not part of um, the culture. Okay. Um, likewise, even in Africa, when you have various uh, mixed communities develop, particularly in Southern Africa, where you have um, new, new communities develop in the 17th and 18th centuries, or even in West Africa, when you have various Creole communities that are a mixture of um, Africans and also re- um, repatriates from the Caribbean and um, the Americas, you don't, though there are always going to be political and economic challenges, you don't see this rejection on the level of race. So that is a very, that is something I am very proud of within the black community. It is a, it is a big tent 
and it is welcoming of everyone that um, you know that that has a reason to be there. And so I almost push back against trying to go into deeper levels because then we start to get into counting digits, you know, of, of, of things and people having to justify their blackness. But one of the beautiful things about the black community is we, we're not going to ask you to justify your blackness unless you're attacking the community and still claiming to be black. That's something else. But if you are loving the community um, and you have legitimate genetic and cultural basis, I think you can't just have a political basis. There does, for me, need to be a, a cultural and heritage basis that upon which your political basis sits. Um, then that's the end of it. We don't question. So if a mixed race person is black, then they are black. That's it. And we accept that. Um, it's not the other way. You know, you don't get to choose to be white as a mixed race person. So that's something I'm very proud of in, in, in the community. So in terms of um, in the British um, context, understanding where race comes from, the first thing I think any, for anybody who wants to go on this journey is they, they really have to uh, not take it personally. So you have to kind of leave your um, your personal grievances at the door because um, it's going to require you to have a lot of compassion and to be very open minded if you really want to understand what race is is all about. And the first thing is you don't actually need to start with black history at all. In fact, you don't even need to start with blackness. You must go back to the Norman conquest of the United, of, of, of England firstly, and then attempted conquests um, of Wales and, and Ireland and unsuccessfully of Scotland. And when you go there, you will realize that those who conquered um, were Norman and they did not consider themselves to be English at all. And they um, subjugated the Anglo-Saxons that they found here and they installed their own um, lords and their own ar aristocracy, essentially. That's That really prevails to today. Mm. And for much of English and British, well, English history, it has been... Um, it really, there has been more pride in tracing your heritage to a Norman heritage and not to an Anglo-Saxon heritage. So initially from 1066, which is often cited as the birth of the nation, you have a racial um, classifications. The upper class are Norman and they speak French or a, a French language and the and everybody else is English and they speak an Anglo-Saxon dialect and that continues for hundreds of years and that is the first race that is created or the first two races that are created in this country. Mm. You then need to fast forward a little bit and begin to understand the, um, the English uh, dealings with the Welsh, the Scottish and the Irish in particular, the Irish. And then you will begin to see what race is. And it, it really does stem from understanding what the English do to their neighbors and the denigration that begins. And the denigration begins at the level of culture. Anything that is Welsh, Scottish or Irish is barbaric. It is basic. It is to be destroyed. It is to be removed. Um, there, are, there is a culture war that develops. And that culture war, if you look at the language that's used in the settlement of Ireland during the colonization of Ireland in the, in the 17th century, which is a violent colonization, yeah. the, the Irish are referred to as barbarians. 
as animals, as beasts. They are an inferior race of half men that are to be deprived of land, moved off land. They are to be collectivized and put onto plantations. And this is what happens to them in Ulster, in the Ulster territories in Northern Ireland. Scottish and English landowners, farmers go into Ireland. They dispossess the indigenous Irish um, lords and they um, they're not successful in enslaving the Irish because the Irish run away but those that they can capture they do reduce to a form of slavery or serfdom mm. and the rest of them that are um, non-compliant they ship off to the colonies starting with Barbados and for the first 50 years of the history of Barbados it is Irish indentured servants who are on the plantations and on those plantations, they are treated um, terribly, yeah. um, like slaves for all intents and purposes. Their only recourse is that they have the right to be free after seven years. But um, if many of them survive for seven years, it's, it's a miracle. And then laws are passed systematically to prevent the Irish from getting access to land and to tools even to clothing. Doesn't this sound familiar? Right? It does, right? Absolutely does. Yeah, for those listening, have a have a real research into these different areas because enslavement didn't stop when the law changed. Like, Britain was still going ahead, still doing it across mm -hmm. the world. They were finding... Mm loopholes they were like a child whose parents said don't do this and they're like no but they, they, they didn't say don't do this they said this instead and so mm. they found some yeah, loopholes and, loophole. and went around yeah. it and, 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 I, and I would even i would even say if you if you had if you have the compassion in you is to look at the the laws under elizabeth the first that are passed against the working class because that will explain to you the laws that are passed to control the working classes in the 1500s and 1600s are almost identical to the laws that will be passed in Barbados um, a century later. So you want to look at the Act of Artifices, for example. And this is essentially an enslavement act for the English um, underclass. And it essentially says that if an Englishman is caught unemployed, he can be forced to work Um by his local lord he must work and when he enters into a contract there is no way for him to leave that contract unless he um, goes to court and has two or three magistrates say that he can leave um, you have apprenticeships for seven years and you cannot leave this apprenticeship and they are unpaid yeah. or set at a minimum minimum wage there is no freedom of movement for working class people in england in the 1500s and 1600s they are not allowed if they are caught on the highways they are arrested and they are thrown into prison. And when they're thrown into prison, they are subject to being forced into, to enter into indentured service contracts and taken to the colonies. So this is not something that is a function merely of race. It's a, it's, it is a function of class. Yeah. It, it, it coalesces and perfects when you can find a difference in the people you want to oppress that is easily identifiable. For the Irish, it's a different culture. They are culturally different. They speak a different language. And perhaps at that time, because there hadn't been as much intermarriage, maybe they looked slightly differently as well. You go into the colonies and what you then have is slowly it becomes not affordable to um, continue to um, have the Irish in this sort of indentured service. Firstly, because they rebel. 
There are Irish servant revolts from the beginning of the establishments of the colonies. They fight back for their lives. They are killed in their attempts to fight back and they are considered to be too volatile. Um, so you need to have another group that you can justify your um, treatment of. And that's where you start to get people who look visually different and who can have no recourse to escape because the Irish could still escape after seven years um, of indentured service. But the Africans have nowhere to go. And, and so that's when you then get the self-fulfilling prophecy of um, you are enslaved, therefore you are black. Oh, you are black, therefore you are enslaved. So it's something that really starts out as a way to control the working class and the underclass. And it perfects, you know, for want of a better word, when you marry that kind of subjugation with with race. And, and that's where you get um, or, or with, you know, um, visual and cultural distinction. Yeah. And then together, those two things create race, in my opinion. No, that was no, that really brings to light just a, well, as usual, I'm going to simplify it the complexity of race. It's just so complex, isn't it? But um, that brings me to the question of the fact that it's so complex. If we're talking about black history before we move into, you know, it being taught into schools, should we not focus a conversation? on race when trying to decolonize the curriculum because it is the fact that it's such a complex nature here. I'll give an example with trade unions and I know Gita, you can speak on this because you're the one who bring me up to speed in this. Politically black could also be a, um, an identity that for instance South Asians can also say I am politically black and we've seen that as quote unquote trade unionism. I took that term from Rennie Lodge. <laughs> um, so, yeah, with that, black people, black people as in like visually black or identify as black due to shared experience, because also look at uh, people uh, from a South Asian background and say, how are you black? How are you black? And that's another whole topic to go off. So race as part of decolonizing the curriculum, should it not be a whole topic in itself in order to decolonize the curriculum? Because we have to talk about it. We have to talk about the history, why our communities look the way that they do. What do you think? Just before you answer that, I just want to say, yeah, absolutely. I remember the first time, so when I was involved with NUS and student unions, I remember being like, okay, so you're going to the Black Students Conference. And I remember like the first time I saw the Black officer and he wasn't black, he was uh, South Asian descent. And I was like, okay. <laughs> when I heard about this, it was because uh, they see politically black. And so they would refer to the black students and I would be within that. And I remember seeing it so uncomfortable, but the flip side to that, because I had several conversations with um, officers of NUS saying, how can we change this terminology? Because I don't like it. Not for me um, as someone who doesn't identify as black. And I think that it removes both the identity of um, black people and I think it removes the identity of non-black POCs um, on both ends and also the struggles of both ends. Um, but I think it's, yeah, I think it was interesting because their response to me was each and every time that, well, what word are we going to use? Because yeah. no one likes saying, we don't like being me. <laughs> like, well, none of those are all work. So it came to the conclusion of like, I'm much more, I wouldn't prefer it, but I understand why we're going for politically black instead of BME or BAME, because those words are just 
not helpful in any way either. Mm. Well, I, I would uh, violently push back against the term politically black. Um, <laughs> and there are, no, <laughs> there are a number of, and I think um, Gita, you said it correctly, you know, it doesn't, it's lazy. It's, uh, it is for the comfort of the people outside. It's for the comfort of the people yeah. who aren't um, the victims of some of the effects of being politically black, if we were to accept the term. Yeah. Um, and it, it, anybody who's in an experience um, doesn't want to be lumped in with everybody else. That's the whole point, right? You you want to be able to differentiate. And even within those experiences, there are differentiations as well. You know, even within the black community, if we don't differentiate between the the black um, Caribbean experience and the black African experience, yeah. then you're going to have a lot of um, injustice because those two mm-hmm. communities are, are firstly being um, affected by some of these issues in different ways and are responding to them in different ways because of their cultural backgrounds. So while we are a whole, everybody's always trying to be an individual. So politically black doesn't work for me. And I would, um, really um, the person I would rely on most in, in kind of shaping my ideology about that would be Steve Biko, who spoke extensively about the, 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 the use of black for um, non-Africans um, in, in apartheid South Africa. And he rejected it. Um, and he rejected it because in, in that particular context, Asians had privileges that black people didn't. Um, so it, it just didn't, it didn't work there. And also within the Asian community, there were grievances that black people didn't have as well, mm-hmm. that, you know, it was now didn't have a, a voice. And those were often religious um, discriminations as well, um, whether um, the Hindu or the Muslim population within those Asian communities. Those were grievances that perhaps the um, majority animist or Christian black people of South Africa didn't have. Um, so I would reject that um, as much as possible and uh, you know, agree with Gita that multiplicity is what we want. And that is what racism seeks to do. Racism seeks to reduce the human experience to a dichotomy of just two. There are only two types of humans, the haves and the have-nots, the whites and the blacks. If we accept that reduction, then we are feeding into the nonsense that is um, the the race-based world. But you can accept blackness while also accepting that there are Asian people and that within Asian people, there are Indians, Pakistanis, Bangladeshis, um, um, you know, um, Far East Asians. And then within Far East Asians, all of the different ones as well, you know, restoration of the multiplicity is the greatest attack against um, white hegemony. On the idea of whether race itself, the actual topic of race should be taught in school, um, I think that the history of race absolutely can be taught in school. Uh, I think it's perhaps too, and this might be controversial, but I think it's too, uh, it would be too much for me for primary or secondary school, because look at how difficult it is even for us, you know, with all of our education to to have this a very philosophical conversation actually it begins to transcend into philosophy however even when one talks about the decolonization of the curriculum i don't think the curriculum needs to be decolonized at all i don't believe that the british should change one thing about the curriculum in order to to um, put black history into it all the um british have to do actually mm. 
the uh, or the curriculum in this country has to do is decide to to actually teach history. Let's just start with that first, right? Because what they're teaching now is not an accurate representation even of the British, mm. um, even of British history. Um, it is not comprehensive. It is um, mm. extremely woolly, um, and it is a fantasy. Half of Borderline it is a line of fiction. So. Borderline fiction. Yeah, it's a fiction even when it doesn't involve yeah. black people. Absolutely. It, you know. I think it's, it's also like the grass is greener on the other side. I think absolutely what you've just said. Um, I remember hearing about Trevor Noah, the um, mixed race um, comedian from America. And he, he spoke about how um, when he was taught in South Africa, where he was born, he was taught that the Britain came in and invaded and and killed and and murdered and, yeah. and did like abused the population. You come to England and and he was like the British were like we came over and we conquered the land conquered, and, yeah. and it was like heroic and and it, honestly I remember coming out of education going yes we conquered the world even being Indian <laughs> I did that I was like yes one third of the world bless you it, and all of this like, yeah. Thinking about it now, I laugh at it because it's so ridiculous. But the the reality behind that mentality is like the education system is propaganda. Like you're teaching me as an Indian person yeah. who's come to your education, you're teaching me that you conquering my ancestors' land was it's a something you should be proud yeah. of. Yeah, it's something yeah. I should be proud of, and it's positive. How propagandous is that? Yeah. And, and the fact like, that it doesn't. Yeah. It doesn't even say, you know, when when we, we look at those things, like conquest is something that as human beings, for some reason or another, we are drawn to it. We don't want to hear about failure, right? So we want to hear about success and we want to hear about conquest. That's that's fine. We can we can do that. However, with the um, the way that British the British teach all of their history, um, there is there is an inability to accept the any value in the other. So anything that is other has no value whatsoever. And this is a historiographical tradition. This is what um, the, the British system classifies as history. And as, as I think, uh, you know, Gita, you just said propaganda. I think it is propaganda. Yes. And it, it's not universal. You can go into other cultures and people deal with history in a different way. So the first thing I would say is we actually just need to teach history, which is to actually allow young people not to be, um, you know, uh, brainwashed with secondary sources but to give them primary sources and teach them the skills of analysing the past, not teach them facts, mm. but teach them the skills of analysing the past. How do we find out what people thought on this day during the, the Great Fire of London? How, you know, if you do that, what does that have to do with, you know, anything? If we give people some reports of um, two colonial officers, for example, um, who had witnessed, uh, one was given a report about the setting up of an office in, in a part of India. The other person was talking about a battle in South Africa. Um, you know, and you give them those two sources and you just ask young people to, to learn the skills of analysing the sources and what we find out about it. It's the trying to put a narrative on top of that and telling a story that delegitimizes the entire curriculum because history has nothing to do with telling stories it's a skill that you learn about how to tap into the narratives and experiences of the past Mm -hmm. and in that sense then 
where does black history come into it? Black history should not be in the curriculum any more than any other history needs to be in the curriculum. And what I mean by that is absolutely British history has to be prioritized because we are in Britain. Mm -hmm. So the, the history of what has happened on this island should be the primary history that people learn. But please, can you reinsert the other peoples in this island first? You know, I would like to know Welsh history. Yeah. I would like to know Scottish history. Before we go to Africa, let's learn what happened in Ireland first. You know? Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. what we're let's saying. go to Northern Ireland, go to Ireland and find out what happened yeah. next year. Let's, let's yeah. find out about their own... I, don't, I couldn't name you an entire... One Welsh king, yeah. one Irish king, one Scottish king. They had kings and queens you know kings and queens and all of these things that existed Mm. for hundreds of years we don't even learn that then after we do that can you please reinsert the um the working class into the histories as well that would be nice and can we reinsert women into the histories and can we Mm. reinsert queer people into the history before we even get to africa Let's just reinsert those ones, right? <laughs> yeah. And then after you've done that, let's insert, let's reinsert black British people. That is people who have mm-hmm. come to this country yeah. and who have contributed to this country. Please stop leaving them out of the things that happened in this country, whether it's the history of art or music or intellectualism. Yeah. Can you just, when you're talking about the greatest playwrights in the world can you please just include the black person who wrote the most popular play or who was the most popular actor just include them in the list please you know of people you want to to study once you've done that we can then begin to dissect into different categories of of types of british people but i don't even mind if this country teaches 100 percent British history that is what has happened on this island Mm -hmm. but it should teach a representation of every single group of people on these islands including its ethnic minorities and if it does that there'll be no problem exactly we won't even have this conversation 100% I absolutely agree with you I think on my end I was a little bit taken back by your first statement I was like oh okay and then when you explained it actually it made sense and I think for me, it's that example of like, does anyone know who Charles Drew is? I think I mentioned it with Dee at some point. Like anyone listening, research Charles Drew, for example. When I when I researched this guy, it blew my mind, the stuff that he has done in history. And we're not taught about someone like that. For me, one of the things that we're not taught that we really should do, um, so we previously had a volunteer who was from Trinidad and Tobago, and they taught, told us about how they're taught about their place in the world and why they are in the, mm. in the place they are. They taught about the British conquest and, Same. and the way they were conquered and why they're politically in the way that the, the position they are in now. And we're not taught that. We're not taught about the political elements of this and why we are in, in such a, a powerful political position and not so much mm. as leaving the EU, we're, we're put um, in uh, a less of a political powerhouse than we have been before because of not being mm. in the union, but we're still in such a powerful position, being such a tiny island. And then mm. after conquering everywhere, we I think Trevor Noah, I love this man, by the way, Trevor Noah. Is she funny. does. But she Trevor does. Noah also mentioned. <laughs> I was about to say <laughs> shout he out. He was like, <laughs> if you're listening to our little podcast, hey. Trevor Noah, hello. <laughs> <laughs> But basically, Trevor Noah also spoke about, he was like, the audacity of Britishness 
We're such a small island. We conquered the world. No one would know about us if we didn't conquer the world. So we conquer the world, tell everyone, hey, Britain is great, England is great. And then we go, we don't want migrants. We don't want you here. Why are you coming here? <laughs> After well, we yeah. tell you about this great land. Yeah, great, I think you have to, a, a big part of it is, is firstly, I would go with, Britain never conquered the world. Yeah. This is a fallacy. And it is a fallacy that you you see in the ability of these so-called conquered people to throw off the cloaks of British imperialism and retain the bulk of their cultures and their languages and their dress and their customs and their foods and everything like that. When the Romans came to England, England was never the same again. They were here for hundreds of years mm-hmm. and it was never the same again. Um, but Britain went around the world and you can go to the middle of India and you can meet people who have no recollection that the British were ever there. It, the, the, this idea of conquest is a propaganda. Throughout the entire period that Britain claimed to have conquered the world, they were never, ever without war. Mm. People fought back every single step of the way. Where they could not defeat people, they decided to impose economic suzerainty. And that is how the bulk of Britain, British colonies were actually held, was by economically holding them, not colonizing them, in the sense of establishing settlements. They were only able to establish real settlements in Southern and Eastern Africa, but they could not survive the heat of West Africa or the heat of India. Um, And that's why they left. What kind of colonization is this that the end of... Yeah, that's it. Where else were their settlements? Yeah, he... Seriously, the only places they were able to survive were Canada because it was temperate. <laughs> and Australia, they were able to survive because there are parts of it that are, that are temperate. But the bulk of the people who went to Australia didn't have a choice. They were convicts. So they weren't even allowed to come back. That's why they're there. Um, but they couldn't survive anywhere else. And that's why they really wanted to hold on to um, Kenya because it was a, a more manageable climate. They couldn't, I mean, malaria killed them off in West Africa. Like, you know, and I think... They caught hands. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So I think this idea of um, conquest, okay. you really need to walk it back and just let it go and detach it from your psyche and from your consciousness. These people, they what they were able to do, and this is how colonialism actually works because um, I, I really want to do a, a lecture on this because I think a lot of people misunderstand what colonialism is. Yeah. People think that colonialism was that um, Europe, or let's say Britain, since that's what we're talking about. Britain went into, let's say, um, into, into Ghana. Britain went into Ghana, they killed all of the monarchs and they took over all the government systems and they actually ruled. There were British courts and there were British schools and if anyone did anything against the British, they would kill them and the British got all the money from from that place and people couldn't, you know, they, you know, people couldn't live their lives. No, that is not how colonialism worked. Colonialism is essentially this that there's a territory that has particular resources now in us in the civilized world you go to that community and you tell them you want to buy 
their resources and they tell you the price and you pay and you get your stuff. That's what happens in civilized interactions. The British were not civilized. They were civilized for a period of time and that worked for hundreds of years. The first Portuguese ships landed on the coast of West Africa in the late 1400s. And until 1880, they were not allowed to leave the coast, okay? 40, let's say 14, I've got my calculator. Let's say they 1480, right? 1480 to 1880, okay? 400 years, Europeans traded with Africans on the West Coast and they dare not leave the coast for fear of death. They had coastal towns, yeah. forts, and they never went into the interior. They paid taxes. All of the African kingdoms collected taxes from the British. And they engaged in, in trade. And the trade was that they would give arms. So when you're talking about 1880, all of the um, principal kingdoms in West Africa are military, are, are mechanized. They have artilleries that are as powerful as the British because the British go to war with them and they lose. The British fight their shanty six times, I believe, four to six times, and they lose every time but the last time. They are decimated by the Ashanti and that is replicated across West Africa. So for 400 years, this uh, I conquered somewhere. I did. No, that never happened. They were there at the pleasure of the local leaders. Something happened in 1870. In 1870, there was the Franco-Prussian War. Now, with the Franco-Prussian War, Prussia is the biggest um, part of uh, what is today Germany. And that's the capitals. It was a kingdom and the, cap the principality and the capital was Berlin. And um, they go to war with France over some disputed land and the Germans win. And this is huge because France is a united nation. Yeah. Germany is a bunch of city states. How on earth can uh, Prussia come and beat France? But they do. They beat France. They unify. And they are now this big industrial country in the middle of Europe. And the French are a bit upset about this. They've had some trading posts or colonies at the leisure of their African hosts off the coast of Senegal for hundreds of years. No one bothers them, right? They built the forts. The Africans, the Africans bring their goods there. It's a market. Sell their goods, you go, and that's it. But don't come near our land. Yeah. So what happens is Germany decides that we've unified now. We want, we want some trading posts as well. And they say, we're going to go to Africa basically. And we're going to take that. And the British and the French get antsy about that. And so they decide, oh, okay, let's divide up this land so we don't kill each other. Yeah. And they sit down, they divide up the land, and then they decide that they now go and impose that. Now, the reason that you have conquest is not necessarily to um, actually conquer the land. It is so that you can make the people sign treaties, right? These are nonsense pieces of paper. And these armies, and we'll get back to this armies, mm -hmm. push into Africa and they make the local leaders sign treaties. And why do they do that? These people are most of them not literate people and they definitely don't use paper contracts to manage their own affairs. Um, but they do this for a number of reasons. They do this so that they can have recourse in Europe. So they've signed this treaty, all the Europeans, and the, and the treaty says that 
if you as France or Germany or Britain sign a treaty with a local African leader, then no other European country mm-hmm. can trade with a ruler. Right? So what did the British and the French decide to do? Oh, we need to get all these people to sign contracts. Mm. That's why they push the interior. They push into the interior, not because of anything to do with the Africans there, but because they wanted recourse against their European um, neighbours. They didn't want their European neighbours to, to take this land, which then they could claim as their own. Mm. So they do that and they go into these places and they get contracts from most of these people because they don't particularly care. They're going to sell to the highest bidder. You want our cola nuts, you want our ground nuts or whatever, we'll sell to the highest bidder. Now, it becomes an issue because some of them start to be like, no, (laughs) sorry, (laughs) we're not just going to sign up just to trade with you. And they fight back. So what do they do? They kill those leaders in war. A lot of them die as well. There are protracted battles and these battles last all the way into 1960 when people were given independence. Make no doubt about it. Nobody stopped fighting. In Algeria, they continue to fight. In Morocco, they continue to fight. All over Africa, all over India, they fought and they fought and they fought. There was never a period of time when anybody lied down and said, I'm going to take your economic suzerainty. Absolutely not. There were always revolts, always pushbacks. And when they couldn't afford it anymore, they said, okay, here's your freedom. And they walked away. So that's what happened. And even when they had control over territory, they never tried to really govern the people in that territory. They used mostly proxy leaders, except in certain locations. They used mostly proxy leaders and those leaders would be paid a pension. And what those leaders had to do is administer local justice according to local custom. And they had set prices for the various goods that they produced. But don't think that the people who were there didn't have agency. They fought back. And slowly, slowly, you have the Indianization of the um, administration, the Africanization of the administration, the um, Caribbeanization of the administration, where intellectuals rise within those societies and begin to push, Uh push, push for greater access, greater profit. And they do, and they eventually push them out. Was it not an intellectual that got independence in in India? Was it not intellectuals that got independence across um, the Caribbean? Was it not intellectuals that got independence across across Africa? So if you're talking about pushback, you must also look at intellectual pushback because a lot of the battle was done in classrooms in boardrooms by trade unions by workers who were not having as we would say on the streets of southeast london they weren't having a bar of it yeah and that's really what happened so absolutely there was exploitation yeah. absolutely there were murders and there was brutality but understand that when they left they were tired they were spent they were bankrupt it was mm. a yeah it was an absolute failure yeah sorry thank you for sharing that i think for me like as a person of indian heritage that fills me with pride and i think it's not that it's not that i ever thought that people just gave up i just had no idea what happened i had no idea no idea about that history no idea about um how people reacted to colonial Britain and, and, and any of that I had no idea so just hearing about well actually 
people fall all, all the way through. I was like, oh wow, like I should be so proud of that history. And I think that's part of the reason why I think the UK needs to do more about, about, about teaching that history is because it's not about, not necessarily about India in particular, but about mm. people who look like me in the UK and what yeah. we did to fight. So when it was civil rights, like what do people like me do in this country? And I think, yeah, it's, it's just so important just hearing from what you said. I that That's taught me a bunch. And I'm someone who's learned a lot around anti-racism, I'd say more so than than the average like Brit and not in an arrogant way but just uh, generally speaking a lot of people don't know about the, the history and anti-racism and all of that in the UK yeah. so um, for me to, to be learning about that means that like a lot of other people um, will be learning about that too. Given um, you know you've expressed your stance that we should be taught British history and within British history I think the issue is that there's a lot missing from what is British history. <laughs> However, Britain, well, we all know that they did colonize, they did bring colonialism, which is an ideology Mm -hmm. that fuels colonization. Mm -hmm. What do you think is their responsibility to ethnic marginalized communities within the UK, within the education system, with learning about history as well? That's not necessarily to do with the island, but definitely to do with things like today, which is more about how you know basically showing both sides so that people don't feel discouraged because i think what what the issue is for me and the more i look at it from um in regards to education it is centered on like you said the fluff the nice the things that make britain look good even if it is complete and utter propaganda it does it's not even real for them what do, to what degree yeah. do you think they have a responsibility to ethnic marginalized communities and uh, British white uh, people as well because they should know too um, more about mm. our complex history mm. my, my um, big answer would be none and I know this is <laughs> crazy none you know this this is a nation state and its number one priority is to act in the best interest of its taxpayers and its taxpayers are what 80% white yeah. okay mm. so that's, that's the first thing um, it has a responsibility to make sure that everyone in this country has a pride of being from this country. If they told the truth, you think anyone's going to be proud to be from this country? <laughs> Absolutely not. I, I will tell you, I, if I was a, an educational psychologist, <laughs> I absolutely would not tell them to teach. I promise you, I'm not proud to be in this country. I'm not proud of this country. I'm not proud to be British. I promise you. The amount of times I, I've said this when I was working as an officer, I remember being uh, particular students did not like me because of that. But no, I'm completely with you. And I'm brown. At least I can say I'm Indian, ethnically. Can you imagine being like ethnically white and then hearing about the horrificness of your history? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 really sad but there is no british history you can tell after in my opinion 1600 that is not the history of racism british history is the history of the perfection of racism the institutionalization of racism the systematization of racism the creation of race um so if you if you start to tell people that this is your legacy what are you going to do to your human capital it is completely counterproductive for them to begin to tell white kids you are responsible for the lynch you, you, the, the the 
ideology that that emanated from this soil is responsible for the lynching of people all across the Caribbean, for the um, systematic rape of black women all over the Americas, for the industrialized enslavement of millions of people, for the subjugation of cultures all across Asia. That's what came from this place. Oh yeah, and you also uh, did really well, you know, you built really nice factories and, um, you know, things like that. But those factories were actually built on the blood and sweat of your exploitation of your working classes and of your racial minorities within the UK as well. Well, Who'd get up in the morning? Honestly. Who'd get up? Honestly. So I, I think the responsibility is to make sure that the next generation of British people have a pride with being from here. And there are, there are many things within British history that can be taught that will nurture that pride. Now, in terms of world history, that should also be taught. I believe that the curriculum should be balanced between British history, European history and world history. In fact, I think, I think it should start with local history. So you learn about your society. How has your town been built up? What, what, was, the, what was the traditional manufacturing or um, service industry in your town? You should go and speak to your family members. I think you should be doing oral history projects every year, mm-hmm. interviewing people in your local community, understanding how they got there. And then you should broaden it, it out. And then on the world scale, you should learn about different world communities that have nothing, absolutely nothing to do with the UK. Um, Go and learn about dynasties in other parts of the world, peoples, religions, you know, peoples that have died out, you know, the Maya or the the ancient um, Asian kingdoms, Japanese kingdoms, all of these sorts of things. Just teach them the wonder of being human, what we as a human race have achieved um, in our time. I think what you're really talking about is critical studies and critical theory. The extent to which should we teach young people to question the society that they live in and to question the origins of that society and the trajectory of that society. And that is that is a, a very, very important skill. And it is a, it should be a part of every subject, including history. There should be a part of history studies that is critical. And the best way to do that for me is to remove narrative history and to go back to source-based teaching in which you do not um, prioritize telling children what happened, but you prioritize teaching them the skills to explore the past. And in, and then through that exploration of the past, they can begin to form their own narratives about what actually happened. And then in critical theory, you can begin to look at particular interpretations of the past and begin to ask children conversation or young people to engage in conversations about why that person wrote that type of history and why that type of history is no longer acceptable in our society or um, we have moved on in our society. That And that should also take place in literature because you have to understand that this racism is deep and it's pervasive, right? Why don't we, I mean, how many... Um, people of um, ethnic minorities in this country have published books. Why are we not teaching these books Mm -hmm. in um, literature classes, for example? Mm. Poetry, why are we not teaching this in in literature classes? We only ever teach literature from non-white people when that literature is about race. Yeah, about them and their history. Yeah, why aren't we just... Yeah, why can't we just teach an, an, an you know, uh, an African person who just happened to write a book about someone Absolutely. going to unfair? Why do we have to teach noughts and crosses by, which is a great book, but, you know, it's a book about race. Yeah. 
that's the only thing yeah. black or non non white people can talk yeah. about. No, I would like to read a normal story that doesn't, you know. Those things also need to happen in science. When they pick the particular scientists, the three or four that you get to learn about, they're all European people. I would like to learn something else in religion. Why we don't learn about animism is a function of entrenched um, racism against indigenous African and Asian faiths. There are many Chinese, I mean Vietnamese people. Uh, you know, some, one of the biggest animist communities in the world and one of the biggest Asian communities in this country. And, you know, according to the British received wisdom, their religion is a barbarity, right? So I would like to see animism taught in, in religious classes as well. We don't, they don't teach religion as much anymore, but I'd like to see that. Um, so I think that within history, I actually would move away from trying to introduce specific narrative histories, like let's teach about this society or that society, or, um, or te- even teaching any kind of truth and move towards developing young people with a skill of looking into the past and being able to deal with the materials of the past. And then we can introduce critical theory and critical thinking across um, the curriculum. Uh, and, and ask young people to really ask themselves um, why are, why is this what we're learning at this particular time in every subject I th- yeah I think it's really interesting what you said yeah I think that was quite interesting that you 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 know your answer in general mm-hmm. I think it was quite um, definitely enlightening for me because it certainly wasn't the answer I was expecting at all um, I was definitely <laughs> thinking okay it was going to go down the route of Yes, it should be, but it wasn't. And it was really great to hear that. And this is the beauty of conversation. I don't know. I think it's really interesting because I feel like I, to some extent, don't really care if people have a pride in Britain. And I think that's <laughs> obviously me being a person of colour and having a knowledge about race of Britain. I, I, I really don't because I think I'm proud of the trajectory we're on. I'm proud of where we're heading. Mm. I'm not necessarily proud of Britain. And I think we can teach history and we can teach what the, the, the horrific history that this country has had, but also make people proud of the trajectory we're on and proud that we're going to become a country that you're going to be proud of. Mm. Right now, we're in a place of learning. We're in a place of teaching you the history. And I think that's really it, because I think if we don't teach that history, the horrific history, that is going to make people not proud of being British and not proud of this country, then we are just, I can't remember what the phrase is, but we're doomed to repeat history, basically. And and I think it really needs, we can't, I don't think we can ever really decolonize or teach critical race theory or anything like that, unless we're really going into the depth of it. Because even when I look at, my education and, and what I was taught, I was always taught about it in America. I was talking about enslavement in America. And I remember seeing that, I remember hearing the, the, the depth of how horrific it was and remember just being mortified by it. And, mm-hmm. and I know if I hadn't have been taught that, I would have been a different person, a different character. I might not even have gone into anti-racism because mm-hmm. I wouldn't have seen how, how devastating the stuff was. But I really wish I was taught about it in the UK and taught about our influence in yeah. this and what we did. And, and and so, yeah, that's why I think it's really important. But I think it's really interesting actually hearing your perspective as well. Yeah, yeah. I was going to add to that um, as well, that um, I think, I don't know, I feel like my whole entire idea has changed as well, just on the basis of what Peke said. So I'm half with both of you at the same time. So let me explain. I believe in terms of 
teaching British history, it should still be truthful to what happened because we can't control people's emotions in regards to how they then respond. But it is the responsibility of the institution in order to, like you said, provide those tools to go and do your own research and also know where else to go and do further, you know, looking into that. But I do believe that the institution should be held to account for the fact that this is their history, though. The history isn't just British in terms of what happened on the soil because of the nature of what happened, which was their decisions. And therefore, it needs to be taught too. And that is a part of British history. Um, but what, but what part of that is, I understand that there's only a certain amount of hours because it is formulated, isn't it? You, you can't be, you can't be in year seven forever because history class is that long. Yeah. <laughs> so part of that to me is there needs to be a, a view in which, you know, sometimes where they used to say, oh, if you want to do extracurricular activities, you can go to this website. It's key. It's stage three. Here you go. Find it on the website. There should be links to different parts of the history for people who want to continue that learning process um, and it should be embedded within the uh, education institutions to provide that information the same way that when other things happen they they're mm. obligated to say and you can find additional help here they need to embed that mm. link that it is like a part of the curriculum to mm. say and this is where the other parts of the sources of education and make that free and accessible because then hopefully we won't be in a place like Gita and me who passed the education institutions which you yeah. paid for still don't really know why we're here yeah. or what you know or, or even racism yeah. I think you know teaching anti-racism <laughs> is so complicated because yeah. you have to understand your history in order to really figure out how to move forward and I think like Gita said we're repeating history <laughs> of trying to right wrongs yeah. without mm-hmm. context and unique we can kind of go back yeah. yeah yeah I think the you know the 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 issue is the is the erasure and the selection you know, mm-hmm. that's that's the where the pain is. It's the pain that you you you, you leave with such a half uh, view, like what Gita said that she left school, you know, proud of conquest, but realizing that conquest came with so many other things. And I think why it's so brutal is because of the denial. Britain has engaged in such a refusal to acknowledge the contribution of its non-white citizens to the prosperity of this land that makes history mm-hmm. such an important thing. If you do, if there was just such if there was an appreciation, right, that was exploitative, I think this an appreciation of the current generation of people. Most of these things will go away. But when you see yourself um, completely disregarded, when you see yourself completely cut out, you go to galleries and they don't display images of you. You know, you you look on TV programs and you're not there. You look on the news and you're not there. And you have academics come on TV and criticize your accents and, you know, all of this sort of mm-hmm. stuff. You, you know, people go into uh, lectures like in SOAS and you have people who have no business doing so using derogatory racial terms um, and being defended by by the press for saying that they're, they're being, you know, they're educating or whatever. When you see all of those things, then your immediate response as a human is to seek to rebuild your esteem and to get some kind of 
consciousness because it's been it's being stripped and because there is nothing in the present on which you can latch because your present existence has been so destroyed you turn naturally to the past and you look and you see of course this is the experience that i'm having of course i'm overrepresented in 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 you know unemployment lines of course i'm overrepresented in imprisonment of course i'm underrepresented in the high, on the upper class look what happened you can't just ignore that you know all of that and you're holding me to the same standard yeah. so Absolutely, history has a part to play, primarily because the white consciousness doesn't want to treat people properly today. If white consciousness decided to stop its racism today, mm-hmm. then you would have a greater willingness of minority communities to assume Britishness, to assume Englishness, and there would be there would be so much wonderful about the lived experience of minorities in this country. Who's going to worry about? the past but you know we have to keep talking about it because you keep oppressing us yep. right at, at that mental level another thing i think is important to note about all of this is what we're really talking about here is the politicization of young people yep. and and that is through history school should not be a political endeavor right no other to- no other subject in school is subject to this level of politicization even though they all have issues and problems there are people who would say half of the maths curriculum should be gone and we should replace it with economics or with financial education yeah. right and that's a deeply political statement because it's saying that we should move away from intellectualism and into entrepreneurialism and that's a, a big mm-hmm. ideological shift for um any nation to make. I, I teach some students in China. They don't learn half the stuff these kids learn here about box plots and, you know, angles and all of this. They learn it, but very young. And then after that, they move into almost accounting type, um, you know, um, analysis by the time they're 16. So we have to be aware as well that in some of these conversations, we are putting onto young people a huge political burden and what I really want to do and I guess that's the crux of my position is to depoliticize the history curriculum and focus on skills acquisition stop seeing it as a tool through which we can rectify anything about the past or put any plasters on the very real racism that continues to exist in this country and see it as what it should be that young people should go to school to learn skills and they should go to school to to learn ways in which they can better themselves and in order to do that what is history that that is the question that we then need to ask because if i asked people in this country what is history and i asked people where i'm from in nigeria what is history not the current generation or previous generation they're going to have two completely different answers even what history is is a social construct in this country history is a scientific endeavor mm. that means that you are looking for a truth generally you are looking to determine what happened so when you look back into the past there's a prioritization of empirical information what date did something happen who was there how many people were there um what documents do we have to back the more documents you have the more legitimate the history mm-hmm. right um the more people that have talked about a particular thing or said something the more legitimate it is as well so you have the entrenchment of intellectual bias because if so and so said something it becomes history yeah. just because they said it not because 
you know, who goes behind the great Don at Oxford and actually looks at the original sources? Very few people. You buy his book in WH Smith and that's history. No, it's not. That's not history. That's his opinion about history. Yeah. It may be an opinion based on a whole bunch of different things, but I could use exactly the same data and come up with a different narrative about what happened. Why is his narrative more important than my narrative? It isn't, right? So in this country, in this culture, in this tradition, history is intellectual, it's factual, it's seeking a truth, right? It disregards often the non-official, right? something is not not official it disregards often the stuff that is not written and it disregards emotion history is supposed to be unemotional yeah. in this in this culture you should be able to study the effects of nazi germany as you study the effects of whether or not the lady next to you um, when she was younger had a good time at school you should be able to engage in these two things as a historian with no emotion yeah. Now, where I come from in West Africa, uh-uh. <laughs> that's not history. Okay. That's not history. History is this. Firstly, history is a tool through which you enter another consciousness that is currently existing because we have the tradition of ancestor veneration. So your ancestors are your saints. In this country, strangers in the Christian tradition, people you don't know, but who are believed to have had a significant spiritual impact on this planet are your intercessors to the divine. Mm. In mm. the American tradition, it is people you know. Yeah. People who lived in your home. And you've always lived in your home from the beginning of time, right? So this is all those people and you and you ask them to intercede right now. Not when you die, right now. And so history is a way to remember what those people did for you. So when you recount history, you are engaging in conversation with your ancestors. And so history is not something you do in a classroom. History is something when you wake up and you can't remember something and you call your grandmother's name and she she helps you, she intercedes to you. History is when you're going on a long walk and you ask your ancestors to guide you and you go to the shrine and you give an offering. That is history. History is trying to understand why our tribe farms, but that tribe are pastoralists and have cows. Ah, it's because at one time in history, at the beginning of time, a person from that tribe was, told, a person from my tribe was told by God to come on at a particular time and a particular day to collect his cattle but he didn't come mm. so that other guy got two cattles and because he got two cattles he was able to breed them and that's why he has cattle and your people have to farm that is a, an origin story from east africa mm understanding why some people are pastoralists and some people are agriculturalists that is history it has a function and history is also not about time time is a function of history history is not a function of time mm. so time exists if something significant happens in it so for mm. example something can happen today and then nothing significant happens for 200 years but when an african tells that story they happened one after the yeah. other because time is created at the moment that significance happens 
So you can have someone telling you a story and then, you know, a European historian will come and say, but that doesn't make any sense because in that tribe, there were 10 kings between the two sightings of the meteor. Maybe there was a meteorite in the sky. There were two sightings of a meteorite. But for that kingdom, there were 10 kings because they had 10 great kings. But in this kingdom, there were only two kings. Why is that? Because all the other kings were insignificant, lazy. They didn't do anything. So no one remembers their time, right? So in the African culture, even time is malleable. And also history is a function of, of geopolitical reality. So you often have that if you go to a community now, they'll tell you their history. They'll tell you their interactions with this particular tribe. And, you know, maybe um, they're on good terms with that tribe. You come a generation later and they'll tell you their history and there's no evidence of that tribe. In the, they'll, they'll say, we don't even know who they are. We don't know where they came from. You do your investigation, you've realized they've since gone to war. Mm. So for them, they've removed that tribe from their consciousness. For the empirically based European, that's, a, that's an illegitimate history. Yep. Right? Because it's been messed with. But for the African, that is history because it is allowing me to tap into the consciousness for me to remember I don't have dealings with those people mm. and here's why. Mm. Right? So even when you look at that, two different cultures can use the past in completely different ways. Yeah. So when I now think of young people in this country, what do I want for my child? in a classroom. I don't want them to be a tool of anyone else's political agenda. I want them to go in and learn the greatness of how to tap into those stories. How do you find archives? How do you document them? How do you go through them and make sure that you're getting the right stories from them? How do you talk to people who've had experiences from before you were born and write those down and compile multiple and then write your own version of events? You know, how do you look at archaeology, photography of the past, records of the past? How do you develop your linguistic skills so that you can read in different languages? So you can, because if you read a, even a, a source that's by, you know, so-called Western historians, you read it in in um, in French, but then you read it in English. So much is lost in translation. There's mm. a historical skill that comes from learning how to reverse engineer that back. Mm. That's what I want young people to learn in school. In terms of their political education, we as parents, when we're parents, we need to do that in our home. We need to do mm. that in our home. And in terms of holding white consciousness to account for its continued brutality, we also need to keep doing that. Maybe not entirely in the history classroom, partially by introducing to young people information and sources that they can use to explore. But the development of skills should be the priority in any classroom, in my opinion. Yeah, I think this is really interesting what you've just said. Yeah. Um, and thank you for sharing that. I think that blew my mind when I realized that actually hearing those stories from the elders in your family, that is, that is history. That is it's a part history, of history, of course. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. And so then when you look at museums and mm -hmm. you realize that museums aren't representative and I realized that growing up, I always thought, ugh, museums are boring. And I always, this is like, I was always disengaged with museums and, and art and, and that kind of side of history, but I loved history in school. Same. Um, but yeah, this side I was disengaged with and I realised it because I didn't realise how normalised it was to not see myself in museums to the point that I never expected it. And so I thought it was really interesting when you see like the war elements in museums as well. 
if you look at it, like there were so many people who were like Indian and so many um, like minoritized ethnicities, but in particular, there were a lot of Sikhs that went to um, wars, a lot of people who were wearing turbans and stuff. Mm-hmm. You don't see that in the pictures because even when history was being made back then, they sent forward the white soldiers first, so the media would take pictures of white soldiers yeah, returning home. home. And yeah. then the black and brown people went later. And so it's just an example of how history was purposefully written so that when we look back on it, we would not see that. Yeah. But yeah, I think it was really interesting what you were saying. And um, yeah, I, I would encourage that anyone in particular who's white, when they go to museums or they go to heritage sites, to look out for people of colour, look look for histories that represent other people that yeah. don't look like you and see what you see. And, and think about what someone who would have those skin tones would feel like. Someone who's black, someone who's brown in those scenarios, how would they feel if they did not see themselves like you are seeing yourself? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah.